Hello, welcome to Driverless. I'm your host, Zach Adams. Today's episode is part three and our final part of the interview featuring one of our IP attorneys, Jay Campbell and Professor Bart Costco from the University of Southern California. Let's wind down this interview and get rolling to today's episode of Driverless. You talk about probabilities. You know, a neural network essentially returns a probability. How sure it is that you should make a right turn or a left turn you know, in an autonomous car? Uh, how sure it is that it's a cat? Uh, fuzzy logic does that same thing. You know, it doesn't give you an exact answer. Like well, a neural it does net give doesn't exact give an answer. exact answer. Okay. But I keep finding this prejudice when you talk to people about neural networks and about expert systems or, you know, machine learning that it doesn't give you an exact answer. And they're, uh, let's say, squeamish. They want an exact answer, but they can't seem to understand it. Sometimes it's better to have that probability, you know, and, that, and that's why a neural network actually, you know, succeeds in some of these applications as opposed to a strict rules-based system. Right. Well, let, me, let me unpack that. A lot of good Please. <laughs> But the first thing I want to say again, that the neural network, as of today, does not tell you how confident it is in its answer, whether it's exact or not. So just bear that in mind. Yes. And that's an active area of research. And the second thing is that it's a theorem that we get that from, for example, a fuzzy system. And in third, we can always use the fuzzy system to or create the fuzzy system that's really underlying the neural system. By the way, we do that with ideally with human brains as well. But we're talking about learning from the neural networks now. Go back to our example of learning 10 faces, any 10 patterns you like. And what applies for 10 applies to 10 trillion. And so we have 10 output light bulbs, 10 output neurons. And what we would like, again, is if we put in you, the third pattern, your face, at the input is the third light bulb to come on. Now, if you just bear with me, the audience, what we really want mathematically is what we call a unit vector. We want the number one in the third slot, and we want nine other zeros there. Okay, but you're not going to get that. No matter how well you train it in general, other than some toy problems, what you're going to get back is a probability distribution over the 10 outputs. Now, so we may get something like this, Jay. We may get back to third light bulb is on 80%, and then the remaining 20% is divvied up among the other nine. Now, what the engineers are doing, whether they're at Google or anywhere else, is they're telling you, in general, that that is the third light bulb. In other words, they're rounding it off. They're kind of doing the old thing that we used to criticize in the fuzzy case. But really what the neural network is telling you is an output distribution, just as you said. And in some rare cases, you'll, get, you'll actually get out the binary spike case, but you'll get out a distribution. Uh, and in practice, though, people interpret that. Now, that's often justified under this theory of a maximum likelihood. We simply go with the most likely output. But it is, it is a matter, matter of rounding off. If I go back to the fuzzy air conditioner, uh, I put in a temperature and I get out an output RPM. I control the motor speed. It is spitting out a numerical value. Uh, so many RPMs here, but uh, 33, for example. But we now know if you look at it more closely, there's a distribution over it. And that's a way of answering it. So I don't know if that's what, what you're after here, but it is the case that the modern neural network, which is a special kind of network called a classifier, mapping into these output light bulbs, again, whether it's 10 or 10 trillion, it makes no difference mathematically, is really spitting out a probability of the light bulbs coming out. And we're taking that and doing what we can. And you can see the problem with that because sometimes almost all the light bulbs are out to the same degree. And if you're just rounding off the winner, well, that's a close call. That's one of these reasons we'd like to have 
something, a second order information about how confident we are in the answer. So, Bart, tell me why a neural net seems to succeed in an autonomous vehicle where you know, the old rules-based systems didn't. Because it was too hard in the old rule-based system to guess at the input-output model. It's just too hard. Like I said, we don't know how to recognize your face in the image, let alone a threatening scenario or a dangerous scenario or, or a big curve ahead or something like that. It's a lot so we easier. Don't, so we don't get. care that the neural network doesn't know why it does it. It just well, doesn't. I care. Uh, I care. <laughs> Great deal as a researcher. But the first order, we're just grateful that it can get something that works at all. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and by the way, this tends, when you look at the results of this, tends to lead us when we're looking at toy problems or research models, which may not be toy problems, but they're not commercially, to overgeneralize from it. Because one thing that does happen with neural networks is they, they do have a fairly high error rate. And I think when, they, when you look at autonomous vehicles, Jay, it's especially there where accidents happen. And you're going to have to have a very low error rate before you can turn these things fully loose, a very low error rate. And with systems that in order to map so many input scenarios to, to do just the visual matching alone, let alone the control stuff on top of it, the kind of deep networks you'll need, the big statistical algorithm, where they train offline or somewhat modify online, can you really get the kind of 99% accuracy that you want, that you need? In theory, we can in time with big enough computers and enough data, but whether that fits within the modern framework of the law and what we expect in the next 20, 30 years of autonomous vehicles, I don't know. I, I'm, I have my doubts about it. So that, that brings me to my next question. Uh, so I drive a Tesla, which is you know a level two autonomous vehicle bordering on level three. Which, which I just love. Um, when do you think we're going to get to five? When are we going to get to where a driver doesn't have to look at all and can take a nap? You know, I just, before I answer, I remember being on the radio in the book tour for Fuzzy Thinking 93 and getting that question many times about the autonomous vehicles. Mm -hmm. And the easy answer then was 20 years from now. You're right, and, yeah. And, and it, was, it was wrong uh, for a lot of reasons, but I would say no sooner than 20, a level five fully autonomous, and that would be a full platoon kind of thing where you can completely rely on it and it's gone through the levels of litigation. It would have to go through uh, the courts to work out the, the deep mass tort liability here and so forth. I think it's many years ahead. Experimental cars though, Jay, within 10 years, you'll have some that'll look like that. But to where you can go manage LA morning traffic or whatever, whatever your favorite city, by sitting in the back of the car and your car of one of 10 platoons going down the 10 freeway, I think that's decades away. It just just to take one example again. The, well, Elon Musk, e Elon Musk says, uh, my car will be able to take me from my office in downtown Cleveland to my house in Medina at the end of the year. Of this year? This year. You know, I think if you cleared the roads and had an experimental <laughs> car and added enough guidance systems and from GPS and elsewhere, that may well be true. But I'm talking about commercial systems. That's what people mean when they say this, I think. Uh, it's a long way away. And if you, you yes. think about just matching, the, take, a, take a snapshot out your front windshield, what you see there to your database of threat scenarios. Uh, by that, I mean the, the danger of cars uh, changing lanes and, and just all that can happen on a modern highway, let alone a freeway system. The, the computational load of that is intense. To get a high level of accuracy on that kind of visual process, we're a long ways away. Right now, you can take pictures with your smartphone. 
but you still really can't do image matching. They're starting to get there. I know Google and other places are working at it, and you'll have systems that can you can lose your car in a parking lot, for example, which we all tend to do, and then just kind of slowly wave your smartphone, and it's, ah, oh, there it is over there. At least it's a car like that. That's still a, a long ways away, and that's a stationary image. Imagine a complicated video. Uh, the paper that my PhD student Oliver Edgan and I won the best paper award for was doing this neural matching where the light bulb comes on, not for your face, but for a movie, for videos, for moving images. But Jay, the computational load there is really intense. And by the way, let me just tell you the trick that's going on there. In order to capture time in a neural network, like what, like a piece of music, but especially like a video image, like a changing scenario, you have to have lots of slices like in a movie and then they're fed back sort of in the stomach of the neural network in a crude kind of feedback. So if I want to have 10 images in my video sample, 10, uh, 10 snapshots, I have to have, in effect, almost like 10 separate neural networks in there for each one of these. And for each one of them, there's an issue of computing its error function. It's very computationally intensive. That's why anything that speeds it up, I showed how to use a special sauce and now patented form of noise that will always speed it up because it's what it's doing is helping you walk up that hill of probability a little bit faster. But nevertheless, uh, the, the, the problem is overwhelming. Just to come close to getting real video recognition, that is image moving recognition uh, in your smart car, uh, we'll do it eventually, but within 20 years, I find that hard to believe it anywhere near the error rates you would need to turn it loose on the public. You know, I like uh, looking ahead, guessing what's going to happen in 20, what's going to happen in 30 years, and then going back. And sometimes it happens in a couple of years, and sometimes it doesn't right. happen at all. Uh, which brings me to this little book I read many years ago uh, <laughs> called Nanotime. Yes. Uh, Nanotime was written, I, I know, several years ago, but it predicted uh, what the world would be like, I believe, like 2030, was it? Yes, Somewhere like that. Anyway, 10 years from now. And uh, one of the things that fascinated me was the idea of placing your brain, your memory, your thoughts on a chip, uh, which then can operate at speeds, you know, much faster than our brain. Yes. You know, you, you talked about our brain not having a, uh, a timer um, right. and just and, and no do that. that. <laughs> right. No clock. Um, but, you know, I was I was also reading that we are on the verge now, these computer uh, brain interfaces where we, we will have a chip that you can implant in, you know, in conjunction with your brain and yes. offload some of your thoughts onto a computer and, uh, and, and process it further. Right. Yes. Right. I mean, so, yeah. so you, you all, you had something there, which, which we're getting awfully close to with nanotime. Yeah. And it's called nanotime. The book, it's a novel introduced that term. And I'm happy to say, Jay, that a publisher approached me recently, approached my agent, and said, we'd like to bring it out again, because it was way ahead of its time. It's a true AI book. And it, it, I'll tell you the story if you're interested. It actually has a movie, Genesis, that, that was quite interesting. And there's current efforts now to make that film. There always is in Hollywood, a new book comes out. But let me tell you what the, the word means, because the book did create that term. Right now, you and I and your listeners are thinking in what we call meat time, slow time. Again, you've got a about 100 billion neurons in the brain, each one tends to be connected about, to about 10,000 other neurons. And we have these long wires. So if you think about it, in a class I often say, if you want a thought experiment, 
and it's a good exercise right now for the listener. Move, wiggle your big toe of your right foot. If you do that, yeah. that is the longest wireless link in, wired link in the body. We got to go from the brain all the way down to the big toe and backwards. Now, how that happens is a wonderful thing, how we get electric charge out of the ionic channels. But the speed, Jay, at which that's happening is slow. It's only a couple hundred meters per second at best. It's very, very slow. Our whole neural system comes out of a couple hundred plus million years of mammalian evolution and animal evolution before that, which is adapted to the features of this planet. And it was good enough for evolutionary work, but not where we want to go in the future. Now, to the extent that you can back up all or part of the brain, and let's remember the great flaw that nature gave us, so the human brain has no backup. So the first thing we want to fix is that, and it's not as much science fiction as you may think. The National Academy of Engineering has listed for the 21st century the reverse engineering of the human brain is one of its projects, one of its goals. That just means backing up the brain and all that comes with it. And I discuss another book called Heaven in a Chip. But to the extent that you can back up the entire brain onto a chip instead of a three-pound meat computer that's boneless, can, consists of these 100 billion neurons, but you can back it up all or in part, or you can do, as you said, just start by putting in a chip implant. And we're working on chip interfaces right now. A lot of my colleagues... USC, for example, are doing this, but so are many other people around the world. But you would you would think and perceive, Jay, not thousands of times faster, but millions and billions and beyond times faster than you are right now. And billions of times faster, we would call nano time in a nanosecond, a billionth of a second. And you'd have this interplay between the slow thoughts that we look at today, like where the burning of a match in subjective time is an interesting unit of time versus to nanotime. In other words, if we were on nanotime, and we will be someday, no doubt some listening today, their offspring will be, then a few seconds of today's time and me time will be years or centuries in nanotime. And once inside that chip, the capabilities of the signal processing are, well, that's kind of like pretty good old approximations of heaven. Now, if you're interested in the origins of the story, just tell you very quickly how this all happened. It had to do with two great film directors, Oliver Stone and Stanley Kubrick, who had competing movies back in the 80s, excellent movies, by the way, Stone's Platoon and, and Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. I got to know Oliver after my book, Heaven, after my book Fuzzy Thinking came out in 93. And in particular, 94, right around this time, was near the end of the school year, I got a phone call from him saying, give me a treatment. That is, in the film world, give me a summary of a drama, of a three-act screenplay. Not the screenplay, but just a summary. Give me a treatment. I said, of what? He said, well, I heard that Stanley Kubrick is making a movie called AI, which later, as you know, came out through Steven Spielberg in 2001. And he said, it's a Warner Brothers. You're my friend. I know you write fiction, which I always done on the side. You're a machine learning guy. Give it a big take. So what do you have in mind? So I don't know. Just come up with something big, something you care about. How big is big as you want? So I went up to the sea. I'd been in the Sierras fly fishing when this happened. And I went back up there to think about it. Well, what's the biggest thing of the 20th century? World War II, easily. What will be the next biggest thing of the 21st century? World War III. What will it look like? That's the question. And nanotime gives you an answer from the 1990s as best as I could extrapolate it out on my research and talking to experts in the CIA fact book, which was, as you said, out to the year 2030. 
and it's about to be released. It's World War Three. While it's a short, it's a countdown of World War Three, what it might well look like. And the protagonist in the story. It's a young is a young man, selfish young man, which is known to happen at that age and his best friend. In the movie or in the drama, it's a it's a foil is my favorite British philosopher, John Stuart Mill, who is an intelligent agent. In other words, you you construct John Stuart Mill through a neural type system and code him in a set of fuzzy rules based on his books. And I'd just been lecturing in, in England at the time and saw a statue of John and so forth. Actually, I was reading his autobiography at the time as well. In any event, and that's the, uh, that's the story. So you end up with this duality between the guy in the flesh and his digital agent. And by the end of the movie, they're, well, they're together, or the end of the book, I should say. So that was circa 1994. Oliver and I, I turned it into treatment, tried to get the movie made, uh, could not do it at the time, just didn't have the special effects you would need in the budget. And I said, okay. And then I went, a, then I went back later, expanded it, rethought it through, and, and turned it into a novel, which is about to be re-released. And, and by the way, Jay, the question is, that I address in the new introduction novel, well, just how accurate was that scenario? In other words, how scary was it? And what I haven't mentioned, earlier part of my background, I used to be in defense. In fact, that's why I came up with a lot of these things as a kid. I mean, it is odd, Jay, to get a top secret clearance when you're 23 years old, working at the largest defense contractor in the world, which I was doing at the time. It was called General Dynamics. In fact, my first assignment was allocation of Tomahawk cruise missiles. But I saw a lot of things as a kid then that made me think about that. And the great thing was with the end of the Cold War, officially on Christmas Day in 91, when the Soviet Union broke up, that era went away. And I'm sorry to say it's, I think it's coming back. Maybe it began with 9-11, but the nuclear proliferation is taking place. And the one thing that the novel missed and underestimated was the real threat of cyber warfare. How deeply penetrated, for example, is the American and European electric grid by several hostile powers. It looks like it's quite deeply penetrated with logic bombs and things like that. The other thing, Jay, is just a sheer amount of off-the-shelf technology that you can get and, and use that's very hard to defend against. And that's one of the principles in nanotime. If you go back and look at warfare in the past 200 plus years, one trend you see is that it becomes cheaper to attack than defend. In the old days, in the Game of Thrones days, it was a siege warfare. It was very expensive to attack. But today, with information theory, and a computer virus may be the best example, it's basically trivial to attack someone, extremely difficult to protect against that. And I would just say to those who think that nuclear weapons and the potential for World War III is science fiction, that you might take a hard look at the world we're living in. Who would have thought, Jay, that just a few months ago, North Korea would detonate an H-bomb, for God's sake? Uh, but they did. And where we are today with respect to, um, yes, artificial intelligence systems and anti-satellite technology and the improvements this gives to existing nuclear weapons, it's a very scary time. And I you have a chance to revisit that with, with nanotime. So, Bart, my friend, this brings us to uh, my last question for you. Sure. You know, what do you see as the next step for artificial intelligence? Are you These, as afraid of yeah. it as... Uh, as uh, Professor Hawking or Elon Musk? No, I'm not afraid, Jay, of multiplication and addition. Don't ever forget that, that at the heart of these algorithms, 
is multiplies and adds in the ships. I am afraid of the people who use it, as I just mentioned. As I just mentioned, you know, if we have a cyber attack, which clearly we plan for and other governments plan for, like what? Like which? Like China, North Korea, Russia, Iran, and many others. Okay, if we have a cyber attack and you shut down the air traffic control system or tie it up, well, not so much try it, uh, shut it down, but confuse it. Or what do you do when the banking system is tied in knots or getting an electrical power grid is knocked out? Things like that. That, can I blame it on the algorithms? No. It's, it's the ill will behind the algorithms. And, and I'm concerned. Again, let me take an example from China, not to pick on China, but it's an interesting example. If you may have heard, they're exploring something called a social credit system. This would be a system that keeps a track of you as a citizen when you've been naughty and nice. Are you paying your bills on time? Have you been reading the wrong Internet sites? It is not hard to imagine, Jay, this kind of a system being it's already being implemented underway in China, but to some degree in other countries. Uh, and and likewise, if I look at surveillance systems, they're getting ever more powerful. The Fourth Amendment already has a lot of holes in it, as you know, for warrantless search. The effect of 9-11 was to blow even bigger holes. When I look at that, that kind of institutionalized concerns for liberty. Uh, I'm, I'm quite concerned about that. Uh, I'm not concerned in the hawking sense of the AI waking up someday as if it had an intercon system and taking over the world, Terminator style or something like that. I'm just the steady progress of off-the-shelf technology in the hands of well-intentioned governments and maybe not so well-intentioned governments and God forbid some hostile terrorist group. In that sense, it's, it's terrifying. More than the 1984 sense. You can call it that, but the thing about 1984 is you read it and it comes off as the bad guys have malicious intent. It's, it's not that. If you go back and look at what happened after 9-11, and you can read some of the op-eds I published in those days in the early aughts or on my webpage, uh, best of intentions, like with the Patriot Act, and there were sunset provisions in there and we took them out, uh, they're always going to be the best of intentions here. And just this steady creep of trading, in that case, liberty for security. Now, one of the things I hope we can start to do with an AI-type system in the future, Jay, is that when we make these decisions, like for example, shall we mandate, as we did in California, that when you drive your car, you wear a seatbelt? Now, I think you're crazy not to wear a seatbelt, but I think you should also have the freedom not to wear, because you're really not imposing a harm on anyone else. But we have laws that said, no, we think that the benefits of wearing a seatbelt outweigh the cost. But there was a liberty cost lost in the next go round, whether you could be pulled over for that, then that got approved, ignored the liberty cost in the first case. I would like to see every time we forego some liberty, that's added to the sum on the other side. But I don't see that. And the, the other thing that concerns me, Jay, is this incremental thing, especially the young people, not just the fact that I have a hard time with going along lecture without somebody checking your Google Internet but that they don't seem to be as worried about privacy as you and I are. And, and maybe it's a result of too much Facebook and these companies that have convinced you they're, that they're your friends and that you should give up your private data to them and so forth. But what a lot of us think is a, is a big deal about what you're going to do, people simply post freely on, on Facebook and, and you go 10, 20, 30 years. Well, I, I'm concerned about that. So I'm not concerned about the AI takeover. I'm concerned about 
good old-fashioned homo sapiens and this imperfect system we've developed of representative governments, which meanwhile, the best system we've found so far, and its incremental march towards less liberty and more control via AI. Well, Bart, this has been fascinating. I appreciate you coming on and uh, talking with us. Maybe we can do this again later uh, and talk Happy about some do. of the social issues of AI. Um, which I know a lot of people are fascinated by. Always so, happy to do it, Jay. Good talking to you. <laughs> thanks once again, Bart. Sure. And that concludes our interview series featuring Jay Campbell and Professor Costco. As always, you can contact us on Twitter at, at underscore driverless or via email at driverless at tuckerellis.com.